ready, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. This might be a familiar story to a lot of you, even outside of the church. I believe that this is a very familiar story. A lot of people have heard of the, the phrase, the title, the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to look at that passage of Scripture now. So if you have your Bibles open and ready, I will go ahead and read this passage. We will pray, and then we will get into the message. Chapter 10, verse 25 says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. Jesus says, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Jesus then asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come before you, first off, just thankful. God, I thank you for the worship team. I thank you for their commitment. Lord, when there's so many of us missing, Lord, the fact that they, they still show up, they practice, and they honor you with their voices, Lord, and I thank you for preparing our hearts with that. God, I thank you for our team down in Mexico, and I ask just safety, and I ask that you would use them to build your kingdom. But Lord, as we are here gathered around your word now, I ask first off that you would just empty me of self and fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Hide me behind your cross and help me to deliver the message that you want these people to hear. Allow none of the words that I speak this morning to be my own, but to be directly from you. I pray that as we look at the Good Samaritan and this, this parable that Jesus tells, Lord, help us to draw truths from it that will make us better Christians and will ultimately glorify you in the end. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of Jesus' parables were told as a result of confrontation with a group of people called Pharisees. He was often criticized and judged for his association with lesser people of that time. For example, people like tax collectors, sinners, drunks, prostitutes. These are the people that Jesus sought after, hung out with, loved on. And according to the Pharisees and other religious leaders, respectable religious leaders and respectable religious people didn't associate with people who disobeyed God's laws. Ironically, the people who said that are the ones that more often than not were disobeying God's laws, were the religious leaders uh, of that day and age. But Jesus would boldly hit back more often than not, accusing the Pharisees of caring more for their rules and their outward show than truly loving and helping people. Hence, we have here a parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in response to a question from what's considered, this guy is called an expert of the law. He no doubt would have studied and interpreted the Jewish law. So needless to say, this guy knows his stuff. He knows it. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the question that he asked Jesus. Now this was not a genuine question. Nor did it have anything to do with salvation in any sense. As a matter of fact, as Luke puts it, this was a test then an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Jewish scholars loved to debate these kinds of questions. 
And it's possible that this man wanted to know if this new popular teacher on the scene, this Jesus guy, knew the answer that all the religious leaders knew. The inheritance question is in regards to what was understood about God's covenant with his people. We learned that back all the way in Genesis chapter 12. And over time, that promise became more future-minded rather than present-minded, implying the gift of eternal life in God's kingdom. But Jesus, knowing full well this man's motives, flips it on him. And he asks him, well, what is written in the law? You already know this essentially is what Jesus is saying. So how do you read it? How do you interpret what you've already read? Simple. This man's probably thinking, is he serious? Again, this is an expert in the law. This is someone who has this stuff memorized, who has studied this, who knows this word for word. And so he gives him the typical response that would have been given at that time, referencing Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And on top of that, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself affirms this answer. But Luke then tells us that this man presented another question in order to justify himself by asking, and who exactly is my neighbor? Let me just say this, people consumed with the law People consumed with what's right and what's wrong, they will always look to justify themselves in any situation. Always. And with that, we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to dissect this type of person that Jesus presents, this idea of, and who is my neighbor, so to speak, and draw some parallels and truths that I feel can be and should be applied to us today. Okay, so let's look at that. And if you have handouts, if you like to take notes, uh, some of this will be on the screen behind me, and I will try to make uh, note of that whenever I see fit. So the first point on your handout is that the Good Samaritan was willing to get involved. We see this in verses 33 and 34. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The good Samaritan saw this man and was willing to help. He saw a person in need. I have a question for you. How many people do we actually see in our life? We might answer, well, millions, thousands a day, probably hundreds a day. But how many people do we actually see? It's a difference between passing people by on the street, checking out at the grocery store, going to the restaurants after church, and you know, interacting with your waiter or waitress a little bit. But do we actually see them as human beings who might be hurting, who might be struggling, who might be lost? Divine opportunities that God places before us almost every single day, and we miss them. Fact of the matter is, we're too distracted, we're too busy, we're too occupied to even see, let alone care enough to get involved. Just like the priest and the Levite, this Samaritan could have had any and all reason not to help this man. Here's a few. First off, time. It literally says here that, but a Samaritan on his journey. So this man had somewhere to be. Now, there may not have been a time restriction, but he had a destination. He was on a journey. So his time was interrupted by this. Maybe fear for his own life. I did a little bit of background research here, and and this is very easy stuff to look up. But Jesus, this, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho... It literally, so he says that the man was going down from Jerusalem. This road literally went down, dropping about three, a little over 3,000 feet in uh, elevation in the course of about 17 miles. So it is literally down. It went through many rocky and wilderness areas, perfect hideouts for bandits, robbers, people who were looking to do just as the robbers did in this story. So it's not odd that Jesus was giving this as an example. This is something that people would be familiar with The road to Jericho is obviously a very dangerous road. So it'd be possible for this Samaritan to think to himself, if I help this guy, 
could this happen to me? How often, time, how often do we think about that in our own lives? We, we meet someone that's struggling, that's hurting, and if we reach out and help them, I might get sucked into the problem too. So I'll just avoid it altogether. We fear for our own lives. How about just the sheer inconvenience of the matter? He literally had to stop and help this guy or he could have moved on. If he stops and helps this man, it's inconvenient to what he was setting on to do, which was his journey to his destination. How oftentimes do we feel inconvenienced by the problems of other people? Maybe the fact that this, this situation was messy. I mean, this man was messed up. It doesn't give us too much detail. Jesus doesn't give us too much detail, but it does say, he does say that they stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. So I can imagine as this, this Samaritan man stumbles upon this guy and sees this mess, and if he goes and gets involved, no doubt he's going to get messy, not only physically, because maybe there was blood and dirt and, and it was just a messy situation, but just how oftentimes in our life do we have people in our lives that are going through emotional turmoil and we don't want to get their mess on us? If I get involved, their emotional mess is now my problem. So we avoid it altogether. Or, and I think this might be the, the, the more obvious choice here, knowing what we know, which will lead me to my next point. The fact that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. As a matter of fact, they hated each other. They were enemies, which leads me to my next point. So first off, we see that the Good Samaritan was willing to get involved. But number two on your handout, the Good Samaritan ignored prejudice. Let me give you some historical background here just so you can kind of understand what, why it's significant that a priest and a Levite passed this guy up and yet the Samaritan stopping was such a profound thing for Jesus to give as an example of who is my neighbor. So the priest notices the victim and yet if the victim was dead, which they didn't know, but if the victim was dead or even just non-Judean, the priest would be defiled by touching him and would have to return to Jerusalem for purification. There was just a series of purification rituals that they would have to go through if they touched something that was deemed unclean. So the people who just saw this priest gloriously fulfilling his priestly role would now see him returning in shame for purification. What did he do to become unclean? So the risk, according to this priest, is far too great. It was inconvenient to him personally, and he couldn't allow a messy relationship to compromise his religion. How often do we avoid messy relationships in order to not compromise our, our status of religious people? I can't associate with that person because what will people think of me? The Levite. The Levite would have had the same perspective as the priest. The Levites assisted the priest for worship in the Jewish temple. So no doubt touching this man could potentially make him unclean as well. So the risk once again is too great. It was once again personally inconvenient, or it was personally convenient to just avoid this situation altogether. What works best for me is just to leave him go. So one of my jobs at Life Choices um, Besides running the education department, I mentioned that our education team, we, we teach in prison. Uh, myself in particular, that's something that I, that I do uh, on a weekly basis. And teaching them about healthy relationship choices and uh, a lot about self-worth and value. That's a lot of stuff that comes up in our, in our curriculum. Um, and if we're talking about prejudice here, when I first started this job, it was really hard to not pick and choose the inmates that I would really focus my attention on. Because no doubt, I mean, I don't know if you've ever met anybody in prison, um, but there are two different types of inmates that I usually uh, kind of categorize them. There are the ones that are in there that are remorseful, that, are, uh, that, that don't really want you to know why they're in there. They kind of, they're, they're more humbled. And then there's the ones that are the more arrogant, uh, uh, not so remorseful, will just tell you point blank what they did kind of people. And I'm not going to lie, I gravitate towards the humbled, remorseful type. As you, I mean, you can imagine that, right? But at the same time, if I allow my prejudice 
to get in the way of what I'm there to do, I'm going to devalue those in this second category. But whenever I ignore my prejudice, I don't care what you're here for. I literally say this to him. I don't care what you're here for. I don't care what you've done, what you will continue to do necessarily, because it's not about right and wrong here. I'm here to focus on you and your worth and value. And I'm hoping that that message I give them will spark some truth in them that will make them just want to be better people. I'm not there to focus on right and wrong. I'm there to focus on the heart. I'm here to focus on on value and worth. And that's the same thing that happens with our residents at our inn. If we're prejudiced and say, well, what you've done is, is far too great. We can't let you come live with us. I mean, we've had people addicted to all kind of narcotics, pills, alcohol, people who have been in abusive relationships, both as victim. We've also been have people in our, in our uh, maternity home that have been the abuser in different situations. If you allow prejudice to enter into your view, your scope of who I'm supposed to love and who I'm not, there's going to be a lot of people we cast off because remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. So I'm no different than the inmate sitting in prison. Yeah, I didn't kill anybody or I didn't sell any drugs or I didn't do anything to get caught, but I'm just as guilty as they are in front of God's eyes, so I can't have prejudice. The Bible literally says that God is no respecter of persons. So now around this time of Jesus' ministry, there was minimal interaction but much knowledge of a group of people known as the Samaritans. So who are The Samaritans. The Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. This race came about after the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom. That was uh, around 721 BC. Certain people from the nation of Israel decided to stay behind when they were allowed to return to their homeland. And there's a lot of speculation on this too. The Assyrian army, one of their, their, what they were known for was not only capturing a people, but also intermarrying with them to kind of kill that race off. So now that race no longer existed. But even whenever um, the, the Israelite people were allowed to return back to their, their homeland, there were some people that stayed behind and continued to intermarry with the Assyrian people. And that's what produced Samaritan people. So you can imagine why the Jewish people who returned back to their land hated these people that stuck around and married the people that, that captured us, that, that persecuted us, that, that treated us like garbage. You're going to stick around with those people? So imagine Jesus using this example of the Samaritan being the one that helps this Jewish man that's left half dead. These people would be appalled by this. We actually see in the Gospels evidence of the Samaritans and the Jewish people's relationships. And I believe these points will be on the screen behind me. Uh, The scripture will be there, but I will just read the scripture. You can have to look this up on your own time. But first off, the Samaritans did not associate with the Jews. John 4, 9 says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? This is the, the woman at the well, okay? She says, For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. It's right there in scripture. They do not associate with Samaritans. Another point is that they had their own religious system and beliefs, the Samaritan people. That exact same story later on down in their dialogue, John 4, 19 through 23, this woman says, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. She's speaking to Jesus here. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the same place to worship is in Jerusalem. So there you can already see a split of religions. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Jesus obviously speaking about himself. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. There was a split in their religious views. But at the same time, not so much that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't just associate with one another. The Samaritan people in particular, they rejected Jesus when he passed through their region. 
And I think this is, I don't know chronologically how much time took place from Jesus telling this parable to when this, uh, this incident that I'm about to read to you happens, but it's, in, it's recorded in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 53. Jesus is journeying from Jerusalem, or he's journeying to Jerusalem, should I say, and it literally says, verse 51, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. It was his journey to Jerusalem that set these people off. Absolutely not. We reject this man. If he's going to Jerusalem, he can walk around. Essentially is what they were saying. And when the disciple, where am I here? But they did not welcome him because he was determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciple James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. They did not associate with the Jews. They had their own religious systems and beliefs and they rejected Jesus when he passed through their region. It's amazing to me Jesus' strategy of picking a Samaritan man to be the hero of this story. When I was talking with uh, Fred and Greg about this, uh, and Andy, uh, they came over to my house and we were sitting around my table and I was kind of just walking through my points uh, in preparation to this. And one of the things that Greg said stood out to me. He said, it's amazing to me under this point of ignoring prejudice, the fact that they did not associate with the Jews. They had their own religious systems and beliefs. They rejected Jesus themselves. The Samaritan man can show mercy to someone, according to Jesus, an enemy especially, that he doesn't even know. How much more, show, more so should Christians be able to love people? If a Samaritan man can love on and treat and get down in the trenches with a Jewish man, how much more so should those who believe in Christ be able to just project love, ignore prejudice, be willing to get involved, so on and so forth? What's our excuse, essentially? So we see the Samaritan was willing to get involved. He ignored prejudice. But point number three on your handout is that the good Samaritan had resources and used them. Verse 34, he went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. First and foremost, the Samaritan attended to this man physically. I'm going to be careful how I say this next thing, but it's funny. A lot of us know people that are hurting or struggling physically, materially, tangibly, things that we could just give to them. Instead, what's our excuse? Hey, I'll be praying for you. And that's all we offer them. Now, I'm not sitting here, I think we need to offer them prayer, but I think we also need to go the extra mile and do something, especially if we have the resources on us. This Samaritan man was equipped, had these bandages, had this wine, had this olive oil, he had money, and yet when he saw someone in need, he said, although I might need this for myself at some point, I'm willing to use this to help this other person. He attended to him physically. Bandages, olive oil, wine, his animal, the inn, the resource that he knew about. I know of a place that I can take this man. Two denarii, which at that time was possibly worth around two days' wages. Imagine giving two days of your hard-earned wages to help someone else completely. You take two of your eight, nine, 10, 11, 12-hour workday, whatever it might be for you, and you just give that to somebody else because they need it more than you do. Plus, it says here, any reimbursements. If it costs more, I'm good for it. So he took care of this man physically. Secondly, he gave this man a lot of his time and comfort. Remember, he was on a journey of some kind with a destination. So he gave him some of that time. I'm going to take care of you and cut my journey short for now. I'll continue on when I know that you're taken care of. 
And it was on a very dangerous road where this could have potentially happened to him too. He got down in the trenches with this man rather than just, and at the same time, we could look at this and say, okay, well, what if I'm the person that's going down this road and I see someone in need and I have resources? Can I just give it to him and then walk away? Sure, but that's not what Jesus says that this man did. No, he stuck with him. He, he got down in the trenches with him. He could have easily just given this man some bandages, some olive oil and wine, left him on the side of the road and said, I hope you do well for yourself and moved on. No, he stuck around because he knew this man absolutely needed him to stick around with him. Oftentimes we think to ourselves, I know I do a lot of, a lot of times, we might ask ourselves this question, well, what can I really do? What can I do that would really help somebody? One thing we can do is not abandon them. That's one thing everybody in this room can do for somebody else is not abandon them. Not turn a blind eye when you see someone in need. You might not have much to offer them. You might not have much advice, but you can hold their hand. Address the matter. Don't just turn a blind eye to it. Even if you don't think you have any resources to help, I love this, sometimes we just need to carry people to someone who can help. That's what this guy did. He had some resources on him, took care of him with the immediate need, but then what did he do? Did he leave him there? No, he threw him onto his own animal and he walked him to somewhere where I know that this person can take care of him better than I can. He just patched the wounds but then this man needed serious intervention and care, so he took him to someone who could do that. He spared no expense. Most people want to know the cost. What's this going to cost me? I, I, well, I need to budget. If I'm going to give to this organization, I need to budget for that. Well, we can't just give that, we can't just lend this person money or we can't just lend this person our time because I gotta check my schedule first. What's this gonna cost me? The Samaritan gave whatever it would take. It's one thing to say it or feel it, it's another thing to do it. Fact is, the fact is, most of us in this room have more than most people. Now, I am not negating the fact that people in here might struggle financially materially, I'm not negating that, but the fact is, is most of us in here probably have more than most people. There are other people worse off than we are. But when it comes to eternal life, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ, we have the greatest gift. So why not just give whatever tangible resources that we have? Time, talent, treasures, you've heard them listed before. We have eternal life. So anything that we accumulate and want to keep to ourselves in this life, we can't take with us anyway. Use it to help other people. There's always going to be people who have more and can do more than we can. But the real issue is, what does God want me to do with what I have? Even if it's, it seems like nothing in your mind, God can use that what seems like nothing for great purposes and for his glory and to save people. And I want you to understand that this morning. So we see that the good Samaritan was willing to get involved. He ignored prejudice. He had resources and he used them. But then point number four, the good Samaritan had a good name. This was one that I debated about even putting into my sermon. But I thought about it more. I prayed about it more. And I think it fits and I think it's good to at least appreciate or understand, and I want to make sure that I dissect this as well as I can. But the Good Samaritan had a good name. Verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend, whatever it takes. Imagine the trust. I'm trying to imagine. I understand this is a hypothetical story. This is a parable that Jesus is telling. But in this story, if we're applying this, if we're putting ourselves into this situation, imagine the trust that the innkeeper must have had on this man. The fact that he promised, all right, I'm going to drop this half-dead guy off that I just found on the side of the road, give you two days' wages to take care of him. I got to go finish my journey. 
I'll come back and check on him, and if you spent any more, I'm good for it. Are we that trustworthy? Are, do, when we say something is, is going to happen, when we say we're going to do something, do we actually, do people take us at our word? The Samaritan did whatever it took to make this man well, and I think that's a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us. He did whatever it took to make us well. And he said he was going to do it. He promised it all throughout the Gospels. If you, you have any doubt about that, read through the Gospels. Jesus foretold of his death so many times, and then he did it. It was almost as if, it was, uh, as he said it, it was already done. Unlike the priest and the Levite, this good, uh, the good Samaritan did not care about the impact on himself. He was committed. And I learned something about the word commitment this past week, actually, at work. Commitment, in some definition, this, this is not maybe the dictionary definition, but I love this definition of commitment. It's persistence with a purpose. And I like to compare that because I like alliterating and I like the way that sounds. So persistence with a purpose versus participation. Commitment, a lot of times, we think just looks like participating, showing up, doing our part, and leaving. No, commitment is I am going to be persistent with a purpose, which is loving people, making them well, whatever, what have you. So be committed. Don't just participate. I think sadly, and maybe this is just me, but Christians, we have a bad reputation for being some of the coldest, most closed-off people, at least in this country. I don't know about other countries. I don't know about down in Mexico, how Christians are viewed down there. But I know that in this country, for whatever reason, we get a bad rep. Now, I think there's reason to discount a lot of those claims. And I think if we picked apart each one of them, one by one, we might be able to justify ourselves. But at the same time, I think we also need to be looking inward and think, why do people think that about us? And when you say that, you might be thinking, why do people think that about us as a whole, even though I'm not the one doing it? I'm still a part of this body, the church, and if there are people acting out that aren't, that are representing me as a whole, what am I doing individually to make us look better, first off, and what am I doing to ensure that these people are corrected in a loving and just way? So just ask yourself, what, well, let me just go this route. Fact is, it's easy to not feel for other people. That's the easy choice. It's easy to just, listen, we have enough problems in our own lives, right? I'm sure every one of you, big or small, has something going on in your life that's distracting you, that's taking up your time, that's, that's weighing on your heart or on your mind. It's hard to feel for other people's hardship and pain. But ironically enough, and I'm going to promise you this, based upon the work that I do on a daily basis, most people won't actually need or want anything from you. I'm promising you, promising you that. The only thing that they'll want from you is understanding, empathy, and compassion. They just want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to know that they're loved by somebody they don't actually just want a handout, which is how we view a lot of these lower end or, or these lesser people, so to speak. They just want a free handout. No, honestly, I think they just want to be heard. They want to be loved. They want to be understood. Now, that doesn't mean understanding leads to tolerance by any means. If their behavior goes against what we believe, we need to lovingly correct them, but we need to love them first. We go in with correction first and then try to love them afterwards, and they're not going to hear us. The fact is, so uh, there's a family... We call them literally the family, okay, because they're in our Butler Clinic, uh, there's a family that it's, I don't know why, it seemed like every other week for like a year's time, just like more family members would come into our clinics, all related for all the same services. It's like the, one of them would come in and get our service, and then they'd go tell their brother, and then that person would come in and get our service, and then they would tell their sister, and then that person would come in and get our services, then they'd tell their cousin, and their cousin would come in, and it just happened for so long, and obviously we offer free services, and so it looked like this family is just trying to grab at whatever they can take. But at the same time, when they were done with the actual service that they needed, let me just point that out, they actually needed these services, this family still comes around almost on a weekly basis. And they don't want a thing from us. You know what they want? They want to have a conversation. 
They just want to check in with us, see how we're doing. Can I do anything for you? Matter of fact, Christmas time, they brought us presents. <laughs> this family that has nothing scraped up whatever money they had, bought us gifts. We obviously bought them gifts too because we, we wanted to. We had the intention of doing that because there's little kids in the family. They've never had Christmas before. But it's just one of those things. A lot of people would look at this family, and I know it because I do it in my own lives, and I have to remember this family when I get into this mindset of this person just wants a free handout. They're just freeloaders. They don't actually want to change anything about themselves. They, don't, they just want something free, and then they want to go about their way. No, most of them actually want relationship. We just don't ever give them a time of day. I'll be honest, what comforts me is that exact thing when I pray to God about anything. It's not the fact that I, and I have to be honest with myself, because sometimes I pray with this idea of like, God, give me, give me, give me. But at the same time, the more often I pray those prayers and then I really reflect on the character of God and the fact that he loves me and that he understands me and that he feels and he hurts for me whenever I'm hurting, I don't actually want anything from him. I just want him to understand. And when I come to the point in my life, in that moment where I know that he understands, that's enough. I don't actually need anything from him at that point because he loves me, he cares for me. And so church, we need to have feelings. We need to feel for other people. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, love them anyway. So the Good Samaritan had a good name. Church, what does our name look like right now? Are we dragging this term Christian through the mud? Are we willing to get involved like the Good Samaritan? Ignore prejudice like the Good Samaritan? Have resources? We all have resources. Are we using them? Do we have a good name? And then the last thing I want to point out to you this morning, and I appreciate you for listening. I feel like I've been all over the place, but hopefully you're getting something from this. Point number five, the good Samaritan had a breakable heart. Verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Living a godly life includes helping people who are suffering regardless of how or why they're suffering. There's no caveat to that. There's no, there's no added, there's no a, a, a disclaimer. Love those who are suffering, reach out to those who are suffering, unless they put themselves in that situation. That's not the case. The Samaritan man could have thought to himself, this man knew the risks of taking this route. Everybody knows this route. There's robbers and bandits all the time. He should have been packing. He should have had his, his uh, uh, conceal and carry or whatever. You know, he should have had a weapon on him or he should have had an animal that he could have ridden off faster or whatever. I don't know. But he could have said, this man knew the risks of taking this route. You made your bed, now lie in it. Let me tell you, I've heard so many people, Christian people, when they find out what I do and who I teach and how often I teach them and what I teach them about, they say, why are you teaching prison inmates? And they literally say that exact expression afterwards. They've made, their bed, they've made their bed, let them lie in it. That is so, okay, so the first time I ever went into the jail, uh, Butler Prison uh, to be, to be uh, specific, I had been at Life Choices for maybe a month at that point, maybe a month and a half, and I was going through the curriculum learning, and then I went in with what was the education director at the time, uh, Christy Pittman, and she took me in. She told me, you're just going to shadow me for the first class so you can kind of get the feel of things. And as soon as these men started walking into the room, piling into this tiny little room smaller than this stage, and there was about 10 of them, and they smelled, and it was, it was right after rec hour, and so they were all sweaty and gross. And they walk in, and they're all much bigger than I am and very intimidating, and they're all tatted up. One of them has, like, tattoos all over his face, and you know, the whole nine yards. It just looks like something you would watch on like A&E, okay? They walk in and I look at Christy almost as if to say, okay, go ahead and do your thing. And she looks at me with that exact same look, like, go ahead, do your thing. She threw me into the lines then and she was like, no, you got it. And what's amazing is I found myself, as soon as I started teaching these guys, listen, I was very intimidated at first and I was very judgmental and I knew some of their stories after a while. But what kept me going and what keeps me going is looking at them, 
hearing their stories and figuring out that they're just, they're just human beings. They're so messed up. Their lives are in a wreck, but they're human beings. They are no different than me. It's amazing. Like our thought process sometimes literally is the same. We'll come to the same conclusions and kind of finish each other's sentences at times. It's, it's kind of lame. Like we're lame best friends that have been best friends our whole life and we just know what the other person is thinking. I think the same as some of these people. It's because they're human beings and I have compassion for them. My heart breaks with the fact that they grew up in a horrible upbringing or maybe they grew up in a good upbringing but just rebelled against it because no one ever taught them that they have worth and value in their life. What motivates me, what gets me going, what started this whole thing in my life of doing what I do, and I know Fred would say the same thing if he's talking about what he does here and planting this church and preaching the gospel, and I know Greg would say the same thing, and I know Andy would say the same thing, and I'm sure all of you would as well. At some point, we felt God's compassion on our heart, and we wanted to then, that transform us, we want to give that compassion to other people. Compassion is what started all of this. So, I don't know why I do this to myself because oftentimes I second guess everything I'm doing, but I listen to sermons about passages that I'm going to be preaching on, not to like bite off their notes, but like just, I like different perspectives because it's amazing. You could literally look at 10 different sermons on the Good Samaritan and all 10 of them could have completely different points. And it's amazing how God's word works like that. But one of them I was listening to was Dr. Charles Stanley. Some of you uh, may know who that is. Andy Stanley is his son, uh, pretty famous author and, and speaker as well. Um, but Dr. Charles Stanley's comment about this passage stuck with me, and I was like, well, I'm definitely going to bite that off of him. But I'm going to give him credit. Okay, this is not something I came up with. It's towards the end of his sermon, and he went through his different points, some of which kind of overlap with mine, but he went in a completely different direction, which was, which was awesome. But he says here, you know, no doubt did the Samaritan's heart start beating a little faster when he came across this man. I mean, you've got to picture this. You're going down this road that's already intimidating enough, scary enough, and then you come across this half-dead guy that's beaten, bloodied up, that's stripped naked, and no doubt different, different thoughts probably went through his head. I mean, I can imagine what happened. First off, that's the first question that would come into my mind. Um, am I next? Are these people still around? Are they like just jumping people at this point? Is he dead? What should I do? All of these questions started bouncing around his mind, no doubt. Only one can speculate that. But at the same time, and this is a quote from Dr. Charles Stanley, he says, while his heart was pumping blood, his spirit was pumping compassion all the more. What stopped? What interrupted this man's journey? It wasn't the guy. It wasn't the half-dead guy. <laughs> Because guess what? The priest and the Levite walked right past that same guy, didn't interrupt their journey. What interrupted his journey was the compassion that he had for that man. Compassion is what interrupts our journey. When I felt God's compassion in my life, that's what interrupted me from wanting to live for myself and my own flesh and turn and serve Jesus. It was compassion that interrupted my life. When you have a heart that is unable to feel for people to the point of intervention, action, care, value, love, what have you, when you have an unbreakable heart, you are in a serious place of trouble. Our heart should be able to break for people around us. So the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus' question is, unspoken of course, to whom must you become a neighbor? He flipped it on him. It's no longer about the law anymore. It's not about justifying ourselves, which is what this expert of the law sought out to do. It's about the heart. It's about morality. It's about love and compassion towards people. We need to realize that we must become a neighbor to anyone and everyone in need that we come across in our own lifetime. We must learn to reach out with compassion to all people just as God is compassionate towards us. And if you have any doubt about God's compassion towards you, read the Gospels. The Gospel story is God's compassion for us. Jesus Christ is the living example of God's compassion for us. The eternal God 
who is outside of time, who's the creator of all things, who spoke things into existence, stepped into our time as a finite man, lived a perfect life, and then was beaten, persecuted, and hung on a cross, and he died with the penalty of all of our sins on him. If that's not compassion, I don't know what is. If we truly believe all life is sacred and valuable, which is what sanctity of life Sunday, which we celebrated a few weeks ago, is about what we recognize. When you see any need, be willing to get involved. Ignore any prejudice. Use your resources, as little as they may be. Live up to your name Christian, which literally means follower of Christ. Don't drag Jesus' name through the mud. And remember, always have a breakable heart. So I have here, and this is how I'm going to close, all the worship team come up in just a minute. I'll let you know. Um, this book is, is one. So at work, uh, we try to have like a devotional book that we read. And it's every Monday we gather around what's called the table. It's just a conference table. I don't know why we nicknamed it the table. It's a really clever nickname, by the way. Uh, but we meet around the table. And that's where we just have devotion time. We pray about the week. Um, we pray every morning. But we pray about the week. We talk about what's going on, what's what's. Uh, was there any news of any people calling into the clinics over the weekend, things like that. But this book we read last year, uh, it's called Everybody Always. It's by an author uh, named Bob Goff. If you've ever read any of his books, uh, you know he's kind of a weirdo. He writes as if I'm, like how I'm talking to you right now is how he writes. That's why I like this, because it's very easy to read. I don't like big words, okay? He's a very relatable guy, okay? And uh, one of the excerpts from this book I think is perfect for the point I'm trying to drive across here. Okay, and I just want to read it to you, and then we'll pray, worship team will come up, we'll sing a few songs, and then we'll go about our day. But I want you to just have this imagery in your mind as you go about your life from here on out, and you see people who are hurting, you see people who are hurting that have put themselves there, that maybe they didn't put themselves there, you see people who are, are hurting that... Um, financially or, or emotionally or spiritually or whatever, I want you to just have this picture in mind. So Bob Goff, his son, his name is Adam, uh, and Adam, he has like this weird pastime that he likes to do, which is skydiving. I don't know who does that just like as like a thing, but his son, uh, at, like I've, I would do it once, but I don't think I would make this like a every other weekend kind of thing, you know, I'll go bowling or something. But at the same time, uh, his son Adam, is it, it, he likes skydiving, and Bob loves his son. I mean, he talks about his son all throughout. The, loves his son. And so he decided to surprise his son by taking skydiving lessons and go skydiving with him every so often. And so this is about the, one of the first times that we learn about this skydiving incident. But Bob's reflecting on the lessons that he was learning in the classes that you have to take. Okay, And he, he was kind of funny. They spend a little bit of time talking about what to do when everything's fine, you know, what, what to pull, what to happen when the, when the chute li- releases, how to steer yourself, how to land perfectly. That's like one class. Then they spend a bunch of other classes talking about what to do when things go wrong, which is what everybody wants to hear about right before they get into a plane and go jump out of it is everything that could possibly go wrong, here's what you do. But at the same time, I think it's good knowledge. And so this is where we pick up in this. He says, there's one last thing the instructor told us in class, he said, if the main parachute doesn't open up and the reserve parachute doesn't either, you've got about 45 seconds before you hit the ground and make your mark. I was surprised and a little grossed out when the instructor said hitting the ground isn't what kills you. That piqued my interest when I first read this. Every bone in your body will break, of course, but after you hit the ground, you'll bounce. And it's the second time you hit that kills you as the broken bones puncture all your organs. Now, I know that's kind of graphic, but it's true. Now, I'm a lawyer, Bob continues, so with this information in mind, I figured I needed a strategy. Here's mine. If none of the parachutes open up, when I hit the ground, I'm going to grab the grass and avoid the bounce. Good luck with that. What is true in skydiving is true in our lives. It's usually not the initial failure that takes any of us out, it's the bounce. We've all hit the ground hard at work or in a relationship or with big ambition. Whether we've had a big public failure or even a bigger private one, the initial failure won't crush our spirit or kill us or kill our faith. It's the second hit that does. 
The second hit is what follows when things go massively wrong or we fail big and the people we thought would rush to us create distance instead. They express disapproval or treat us with polite indifference. If we want to be like Jesus, here's our simple and courageous job. Catch people on the bounce. When they mess up, Reach out to them with love and acceptance the way Jesus did. And when they hit hard, run to them with your arms wide open to hug them even harder. God wants to be with them when they mess up. And he wants us to participate. I keep putting on my parachute and getting in the plane with Adam, his son, on the weekends. Truth be known, I don't like skydiving as much as he does, but I like Adam a lot. Find the people that you love, find what the people you love want to do, and then go be with them. If Adam wanted to make pizzas, I'd grow the tomatoes. Be with each other. Don't just gather information about people who have failed big or in need. Go be with them. When you get there, don't just be in proximity. Be present. See them. That's what I was talking about in my first point. Catch them. Don't try to teach them. There's a big difference. We don't need a plan to do these things We don't need to wait for just the right moment. We need to show up, grab a parachute, and when it's time, jump out of our shoes after the people the way Jesus jumped out of heaven to be with us. Sometimes we make loving people a lot more complicated than Jesus did. We don't need to anymore, just up, down, and out. Worship team can come up. Verse 36. Jesus, after he was done telling this parable, says to this man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he responds, the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus then told him, go and do the same. Church, this morning, I dissected this parable a little bit. Hopefully you gained something from it. But I'm not going to leave you with that and say, well, that's good information. I hope you understand that and continue to live as you, as, you, as you wish. No, it's the one who showed mercy. It's the one who showed compassion. So be compassionate. Be merciful as God is merciful to us. And go and do the same. Do you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for this time. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for teaching me, as I'm supposed to be teaching, Lord, you're revealing things to me that I need to work on in my own life. So help me with that, God. Help all of us. God, give us breakable hearts. I just think of, just think of Jesus and his life here on earth and how many people missed him and how much that, that probably just groaned his heart, Lord, and Lord, he sees people all the time that are introduced to him or this idea of him, and and we miss him. Sometimes even as Christians, we miss him, Lord, and I just, I pray, Lord, that that would not be the case anymore, Lord God, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that we would become people of compassion, of mercy, that would see, that would see people. Lord, help us to have an interactive heart that would want to get down in the trenches with people and offer what we have, Lord. And if we don't have much to to bring them to a place, to bring them to someone who can help them, Lord. There's so much hurt in this world. There's so much hurt in just this area alone. Lord, we're speaking of sanctity of human life, Lord. There are people in here that might be hurting from a past decision that they made about abortion or a past decision that they made about relationship that was falling apart that they chose wrong, that they failed in their own minds. God, help us to run to them with open arms and catch them before they hit again. Father, just please be in this place. Allow your compassion just to fall on us. Allow your Holy Spirit to just work. Thank you, Lord God, for the truths of your word. Thank you for just being here, for impacting our lives, for loving us, and for showing your compassion on us through Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.